0: Thank you, and welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Today I would like to begin a study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John, where we have recorded for us the most important interview in all history. Let me introduce this series of messages, not by reading from John chapter 3, but rather by reading from Peter's first epistle. These words are found in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Peter's first epistle, addressed to the strangers, aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, was written late in the life of this apostle, to whom the Lord Jesus Christ had given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The apostle's main theme is suffering, particularly the suffering of the true child of God. Because of the Christian's association with the suffering Savior, he can expect to suffer in this world as he goes about the master's business. It's in verse 23 of the first chapter of this epistle that Peter speaks of a unique experience that is the possession of all who truly know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. The apostle speaks of all true children of God as being born again, having undergone new birth, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. All Christians have been born again or begotten again. This refers to an act of the Holy Spirit in which the believer is regenerated unto eternal life and, as a part of this process, a new spiritual nature is begotten or created. There is no true child of God who has not undergone this experience. All who truly know the Lord can claim Peter's words for themselves, being born again. In spite of Satan's destruction of the effectiveness of this term in evangelistic work, it's still a perfectly good biblical term. The expression was first used by our Lord Jesus Christ in his interview with Nicodemus, as is recorded in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Not only did the Lord use the term, but he both defined and illustrated it if one seeks the true meaning and implications of the expression born again he should study john chapter 3. there he'll find the lord's own explanation of the process of spiritual rebirth that is the purpose of this study we'll go to the most important interview in all history and consider the choice that was made so clear to nicodemus this ruler of the jews just as every other human being in the world was faced with a clear choice religion Christ. The account of the conversation between Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus Christ begins with the first verse of John chapter 3. However, one glance at the Greek text tells us that John began this section of scripture in what we know as John chapter 2 and verse 23. This is where the inspired author actually introduced the conversation. Therefore, our study must begin with the closing verses of chapter 2. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them, because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. These last three verses of chapter 2 form an introduction to the great teachings which now follow and which are so characteristic of the Gospel of John. These are, first, the unfolding of the truth concerning eternal life, second, how it's imparted to man, and third, what goes with it. Here we have, first of all, a picture of the condition of man and how he's in need of a new nature and must be born again. An expanded translation of John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, would read as follows. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, at the feast, many believed on his name, viewing with a critical and discerning eye the miracles which he was constantly doing. But Jesus himself was not entrusting himself to them, because he was constantly knowing by experience all things, and because he was not having need that anyone should bear testimony concerning the individual man, for he himself was constantly knowing by experience what was in the individual man. The connection is as follows. Jesus knew what was in the heart of the individual John's purpose now is to show what Jesus found in the heart of man not by telling us in so many words But by bringing to the attention of the reader various individuals who would be exhibits John records what these people say Because man speaks out of the abundance of his heart the reader also can see what is in the heart of man this gives us an insight into the plan of John's gospel John is primarily a theologian as he develops this book. His main purpose is to demonstrate the deity of our Lord. But in connection with his theology, John also has an evangelistic outreach for lost souls. He tells the reader what is in man and thus shows him what's wrong with man. Then he brings to our attention the divine cure for sin, namely the blood of the Lord Jesus. We read, Now when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover, in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Jesus was in Jerusalem during Passover, and at the time he did miracles by which he manifested his power and glory. These miracles were the credentials of King Messiah. They were the signs of the kingdom. As a result of these signs he wrought, Many believed on his name. That is, they conceded him to be the Messiah, the son of David, the promised king. The miracles were evidences to them of the true Messiahship of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, a faith that rests on the observance of miracles is not a saving faith. A faith that rests entirely upon signs and wonders does not bring salvation to anyone. That is precisely why it is not worthwhile for us to debate with unbelievers about their objections to the inspiration of the Bible. Jesus said, Go ye into all the world, and preach the gospel to every creature. Elsewhere we're told, The preaching of the cross is unto them that perish foolishness. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. God gives miracles to authenticate the word. However, faith must rest on something far better than miracles. Here were the Jewish people waiting for Messiah to come. They saw the miracles that Jesus did, and they said, Well now, if Messiah came, could could he do any more miracles than this man has done? Jesus of Nazareth must be the one of whom the prophets have spoken. In that sense, they believed that he was Messiah, but they did not confess that they were guilty souls needing salvation, and they did not see in Jesus the Savior whom they needed. That's the condition of a majority of the professing Christians of today. Those people believe in his name when they saw the miracles. But while they believed on his name, not as the Son of God, but as Messiah, he did not commit or trust himself to them. Their faith was not such as affected their moral nature, not a faith which is expressed in complete submission to him or which opens the heart to receive him. The first part of verse 24 says that Jesus did not commit himself to them. The words commit and believe are really just different forms of the very same word in the original language. We might read this statement, Many believed in his name, but Jesus did not believe in them. The Lord Jesus Christ did not trust his interests to these people because he knew that they were not genuine. He knew exactly what was in man. He needed no further testimony concerning that man. He was fully aware of the wickedness and unreliability of each individual human heart. You and I like to make out a good case for ourselves, but Scripture shows how little we have to boast of if we would really be honest with God. Because Jesus was God manifest in the flesh, he knew what was in man. He is as truly God and as truly omniscient as is the Father. He knows exactly what's in you and me. Yet, knowing all this, he loved us and gave himself for us. But he does not trust us nor rely upon these sin-poisoned souls that are ours by natural birth. He knows that we, the natural beings, cannot be depended upon. We're lost and ruined and undone. What we need, therefore, is a new life. We need to be reborn of the Spirit. That is the new life He gives to us. While these Jewish people were fully convinced that He who did these miracles was the Messiah, their hearts were untouched. It was intellectual belief which assents to outward evidence, but which felt no need of a Savior and would not own the real condition of the heart before God. This is an illustration of what the natural man is, how spiritually dead he is. The Lord Jesus looked through these men. Because he is God, he knows the hearts of all the children of men. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 39, we read of him, Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. He's the searcher of hearts, who alone can sound the desperately wicked depths of the human soul. But I see that my time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of John chapter 3 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm glad you've tuned in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. Today we're continuing our study of John chapter 3. We're interested in the Lord's definition of the term born again. The expression born again is a very good biblical term that applies uniquely to all who are saved. However, in our day, this expression has fallen into ill repute. In order to ridicule and destroy the scriptural meaning of the term born again, Satan has given the term to the world where it's used to describe a great number of bizarre occurrences. In the drug world, it's used to describe one's first experience or trip with hallucinating chemical compounds. In satanic cults, one has been born again after his first occultic experience. In a popular men's lodge, a lodge that has many overtones of the Babylonian mystery religion, one is said to have been born again when he achieves a certain high-level degree. In the secular world, many say that they have been born again when they're given a renewal of life through psychotherapy or through medical therapy that brings a cure to a devastating illness. Because there are so many non-biblical definitions of the term born-again, it no longer conveys a clear impression when used in its biblical sense. At one time the question, are you born again, was considered equivalent to the question, are you saved, or do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? But now many non-Christians, drug addicts, high-degree lodge members, Satan worshipers, and medically restored, non-regenerated persons will give an affirmative answer to this question soul winners for the Lord Jesus Christ are required to use another expression as they contact the lost and dying of this world. The expression, born again, was first used by our Lord Jesus Christ in his interview with Nicodemus, as is recorded in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Not only did the Lord use the term, but he both defined and illustrated it. If one seeks the true meaning and implications of the expression born again, he should study John chapter 3. There he'll find the Lord's own explanation of the process of spiritual rebirth. Let's read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At the beginning of John chapter 3 and verse 1, there is a little Greek word that has not been translated in our authorized English version. This word is sometimes translated now, though more generally, but. It's the same word used in the beginning of John chapter 2 and verse 23, where we read, But when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. So if we translate this word and put it in its right place at the beginning of John chapter 3 and verse 1, we read, But there was a man of the Pharisees. The Spirit of God thus puts this man in contrast with the Jewish people of verses 23 through 25. We are now introduced to a Jewish man of the sect of the Pharisees, who believed because he had seen the miracles of the Lord and yet he seemed to have a deeper desire than the others. This desire led Nicodemus to interview the Lord personally. Since he was a Pharisee, we can know that he was a member of an honored sect among the Jews, known for their extreme religiousness in keeping the law, as well as the traditions of the elders, the interpretation of that law. The Pharisees were the religious ritualists of that day. The Judaism of the first century was no longer that supernaturally revealed system in which the Israelite was taught to look ahead in faith to a coming sacrifice which God would offer for his sins, this sacrifice being typified by the tabernacle offerings and the priesthood. It was merely an ethical cult, preaching a salvation by works message. Nicodemus, the Apostle John's Exhibit number 1, subscribe to this system of teaching. His name is a Greek name. It was a custom at that time among the Jews for the parents to give their boys two names, a Jewish and a Gentile name. The name Nicodemus is made up of two words, a word which means to conquer and one which means the common people. The total word means one who conquers the people. Evidently, this name was given the boy at his birth. The Pharisaic tradition at the time included this idea, namely that of subjugation of the common people. The Lord Jesus spoke of the burdens which the Pharisees were wont to put upon the backs of the people in the form of religious practices which were not extra-biblical. But here is a Pharisee whose heart is touched. We're told he was a ruler among the Jews. That is, he held a high ecclesiastical position in his nation, a position which demanded a clean moral character. We find another description of this man in verse 10. The Lord addressed him as the teacher in Israel. He had the reputation in his generation of being a leading, deeply educated teacher to whom the people looked for instruction and guidance. Nicodemus has the distinction of being mentioned not only in Scripture, but also in surviving Jewish literature. In Talmudical literature, he's mentioned as Nicodemus Ben-Gurion. For this, see the Jewish Encyclopedia, Volume 9, page 300. Nicodemus Ben-Gurion, an outstanding figure in the Jewish economy of the first century. Nicodemus was a leading member of the Sanhedrin and a man of much wealth. Nicodemus stands in contrast to those who believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Here is a man who was totally honest in his seeking after the truth. Our Lord Jesus Christ recognized him as such. Whenever our Lord finds a man who is really in earnest, he will see that the truth is given to that one. Of that we can be absolutely assured. Perhaps someone asks, Well, what about the heathen who have never heard of him or of his gospel? Will God condemn them to everlasting judgment for not believing in a Savior of whom they've never heard? No, of course he won't. But what he will do is this. He will condemn the heathen for all the sins of which they have not repented. However, he will see that every repentant soul gets enough light to be saved. He will not let a man be lost if that man is honestly seeking for the truth. So here is Nicodemus, an honest seeker. The Lord Jesus Christ treats him as such. But there was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus his name, a ruler of the Jews. This is the last man on earth that natural man would think needed anything. Nicodemus was deeply religious. According to his own interpretation, he had kept God's law all of his life, he had fulfilled all of the religious obligations that he recognized. But this religious man, when he was face to face with the Christ of God, found out that he had a tremendous lack. He had religion, but he did not have Christ. A great many people in the world today are just like Nicodemus. They are, by man's standards, good people. They reverence spiritual things. And yet these people have not confessed their sins before God, and they have never known the second birth. These ones should follow carefully our Lord Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Let's all listen as though we had never heard it before. Nicodemus sought the Lord Jesus by night. Twice more this fact is emphasized by John in this gospel. We're not given the reason that this man came to Jesus by night, but some take this as evidence of cowardice. They feel that he was a man who truly believed in Jesus, yet was not willing to risk losing his position by open acknowledgement of his faith. While he had an earnest longing for the truth, which made him take a great risk, they feel that he was at the same time timid, fearing the scorn and condemnation of his co-religionists. However, we cannot be sure that he was a coward. The emphasis that John gives to his nighttime visit seems to refute cowardice as his major motivation. He really does not act like a coward. More likely, he came to Jesus by night because he wanted privacy as he poured out his heart to this man. The Lord Jesus was totally surrounded by crowds all day. Nicodemus wanted his undivided attention, so he sought him during the evening hours when there was no competition from the multitude. Nicodemus wanted to be alone with this teacher come from God. Nicodemus addressed the Lord as rabbi which means master or teacher This Hebrew name is one used by the Jews as a term of respect to those whom they recognize as teachers It's accepted as meaning my great one my honorable, sir The Lord Jesus was not an official rabbi among the Jews But his prominence as a religious teacher had already gained him this degree of respect even among his enemies and they gave him this title It was, in effect, his honorary doctorate. Nicodemus began by saying, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. Literally rendered, from God thou hast come a teacher. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. This was not the end of the sentence. Nicodemus was still speaking, but he had revealed his lack in his opening sentence. Therefore the Lord Jesus interrupted him and declared, Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My time is almost gone for today. We'll continue our study of John chapter 3 on the next broadcast exactly where we leave off today. Welcome to another broadcast of the Bible stands. I'm glad you've tuned in to be with us as we continue our study of John chapter 3 Let's begin this third message of the series by reading John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him rabbi we know that thou art a teacher come from God For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. At the beginning of John chapter 3 and verse 1, there's a little Greek word that has not been translated in our authorized English version. This word is sometimes translated now, though more generally, but. It's the same word used in the beginning of John chapter 2 and verse 23, but when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover. So if we translate this word and put it in its right place at the beginning of John chapter 3 and verse 1, we read, But there was a man of the Pharisees. The Spirit of God thus puts this man in contrast with the Jewish people of verses 23 through 25. We are now introduced to a Jewish man of the sect of the Pharisees, who believed because he had seen the miracles of the Lord, and yet he seemed to have a deeper desire than the others. Nicodemus had not fully recognized the Lord's identity when he addressed him as a teacher come from God. He did not recognize the Lord's deity. Most likely, Nicodemus had a strong impression that Jesus must be the Messiah, yet he was cautious and he made, therefore, an attempt to know more about him by the opening words of this private conversation. The Lord knew what was in man. After those initial words, the Lord answered him at once without permitting this ruler of the Jews to continue his address. What was in Nicodemus' heart? About what did he intend to speak to the Lord? When we read how the Lord answered him, then we have a hint of what was in his heart. The Lord anticipated his question and at once touched upon the whole matter which had exercised the mind of this Pharisee. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus came to inquire concerning the kingdom. The Messiah and the kingdom were inseparably associated in the Jewish mind. If this man does miracles as he did, is he the Messiah? And if he is, what about the kingdom? This must have been the supreme thought with Nicodemus. The words the Lord spoke to him indicate this. This brings up the question, what kingdom did our Lord mean when he addressed Nicodemus in this abrupt way? This we must consider first. Then we can ascertain the meaning of being born again as well as the mode of this new birth. The gospel is often preached, and that rightly so, from the story of Nicodemus. Those who use this text place emphasis upon the great truth that there's only one way into the kingdom and that is the new birth. But the gospel preacher generally identifies the kingdom of God with salvation and speaks of it in the sense of being right with God, getting saved, and receiving eternal life, which is all very true. However, the original meaning in connection with Nicodemus is quite overlooked. Nicodemus certainly did not understand by the kingdom anything different from the kingdom which the prophets of his people had predicted. It's the kingdom promised to Israel, the kingdom which is not now, which will come someday, and into which Israel will enter. Nicodemus had no understanding of God's purpose for this inter-advent age and its invisible kingdom of believers. In this age, the king is away, and the administration of his kingdom is in the hands of men. The king is the head in heaven, but he is not visibly present in the earth. Nicodemus was on an earthly plane as his heart considered those questions concerning the earthly kingdom. He knew that he had a great lack, and he knew that the man before whom he stood had the only answers. His mind was not on salvation, as we define the term, but it was on his part in the coming earthly kingdom. The Lord answered his question, but he also pointed the way to salvation during this present age of God's grace. The term kingdom of God is the all-inclusive term that speaks of all moral intelligences willingly subject to God in any age or dispensation. Nicodemus was looking for the millennial reign of Messiah on the earth. But Jesus, in his use of the term kingdom of God, was teaching him that the only one who can rightly look for the coming earthly kingdom is a saved Jew. That person must enter the kingdom of God first, that is, he must be saved, since the promises of God to Israel were made to spiritual Israel, not to an apostate nation. The Lord's answer, therefore, in effect, is as follows, Nicodemus, you're looking for Messiah and the earthly kingdom of Israel. But you're unsaved, and you need to be born again. Only a saved Jew is the kingdom of God promised. It's only to the saved Jew that the kingdom of God is promised. Since Nicodemus was a representative man of the human race, having in his heart that which is found in every other person, since he needed to be born again, and since John was writing for the Gentiles, it follows that every human being needs to be born again. the meaning of the Greek word here translated again. The Greek word is anothen. It has two meanings, again and from above. When a Greek word has more than one meaning, the context decides as to what meaning is to be used in that particular instance. For example, this word is found in John chapter 3 and verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. The context here speaks of the earth as contrasted to heaven. Therefore, the word anothen means from above in John chapter 3 and verse 31. But in the verse we're now considering, it means again, and for the reason that Nicodemus in his answer to Jesus so understands it. He speaks of a second birth. But now we come to an even finer distinction. There are two words in the Greek New Testament which mean again. Palein, which refers to the repetition of an act, and anothen, which speaks of the repetition of an act, but adds additional detail. It speaks of the repetition of an act, that repetition having the same source as the first act. It goes back to the outset of the matter, to the original state. Therefore, this being born a second time has no reference to one's physical birth as the first time one is born, and for the reason that the source of physical birth is natural generation. Whereas the source of the new birth is supernatural generation. When Jesus speaks of being born again in verse 5, he speaks of being born of the Holy Spirit. This consideration takes us back to the original impartation of spiritual life to the first Adam. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 states, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Hebrew word for life in the original is plural. Therefore, it speaks of the impartation both of physical life and of spiritual life. The first Adam was the federal head of the human race. And when in his unfallen state the human race stood in him, it partook of the spiritual life which had been imparted to him. But Adam, in his fall into sin, lost the spiritual life for the whole human race and plunged its members into total depravity and a lost condition. Jesus, therefore, speaking to this theologian of the Old Testament Scriptures, reminds him of all this and tells him that since he lost this spiritual life as he stood in the first Adam, he needs a fresh impartation of spiritual life. This life is given him through his being placed in the last Adam in answer to his faith in a coming sacrifice for sin, the last Adam being that sacrifice. All this is implicit in the words of Jesus, and to a theologian such as Nicodemus, learned in the Old Testament scriptures, should have been at least intellectually clear. In his reply, the Lord Jesus was, in effect, saying, It does not help to say nice things, Nicodemus, You need more than a teacher. You need a Savior, one who can give you a new life. You need a second birth. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a widespread notion today that men may be educated into Christianity. However, a certain form of religious education is one of the greatest abominations of the present day the idea behind this is that you can take a child and instruct him along the lines of the Christian philosophy and thus educate him into salvation now don't get the idea that we object to the term Christian education this is altogether right and a proper thing a church cannot survive without it it is right and proper to instruct the Christian along Christian lines but Religious education, which simply tries to make people Christians by educating them into it, is the means of making many thousands of hypocrites instead of making them Christians. Ye must be born again. There must be the installation of a new spiritual life. The Lord includes Nicodemus, all the other members of the Sanhedrin, and all mankind when he says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. My time is gone for today. We'll continue our study of John chapter 3 on the next broadcast. Thank you for tuning in to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when we can gather together by radio around the Word of God. We're continuing our study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John we're trying to determine the true meaning of the term born again let's open this fourth message of the series by reading John chapter 3 verses 4 through 8 Nicodemus saith unto him how can a man be born when he is old can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born Jesus answered verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born of water and of the Spirit he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the spirit. The Lord had just told Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In reply to this, Nicodemus said, But I don't understand it. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he go through the whole process of nature again? Why, that seems absurd. Just imagine. Can I go back and be born of my mother again? This question reveals the ignorance of the natural man, though he may be, like Nicodemus, in the eyes of man, a great teacher and religious leader. Nicodemus was just as ignorant as the Samaritan woman who did not know what the Lord meant by living water Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel But he was ignorant of even the most simple point concerning the entrance into the kingdom of God in answer to Nicodemus our Lord enlightens him as to the new birth that it's a birth of the water and the spirit And repeats once more the absolute necessity of such a birth for entrance into the kingdom of God Verily verily I say unto thee except a man be born of water and of the Spirit He cannot enter into the kingdom of God Nicodemus question showed that he was thinking only of the physical birth process How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? He was asking the Lord how one might go about obtaining a second physical birth In reply to his question concerning the possibility of re-entering his mother's body and undergoing the birth process once again The Lord Jesus said Nicodemus listen to me it would not make one iota of difference if you could You would be no better off the next time than you were before the natural birth does not count It must be a spiritual birth verily verily I say unto thee Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. What tremendously weighty words these are. First, the Savior said, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. What did he mean? there are various interpretations of this statement some interpret the word water here as referring to human birth as coming in a sack of water and this is in contrast to the birth of the spirit but the question arises at once as to whether the Lord Jesus would waste words on such a self evident truth to the effect that in order for a person to be born into the kingdom of God he must first be brought into existence by being born physically Furthermore, we learn that the particular Greek word used here by John, meaning again, has no reference to the physical birth as being a predecessor of the spiritual birth. Others interpret the words water as referring to the rite of water baptism, but we submit that this is simply reading into the text something that is not there. Surely the word water in itself does not include within its meaning the idea of baptism. Furthermore, the only recipient of water baptism is one who has already been born again, the new birth preceding water baptism, not the rite preceding the new birth. How could such a supernatural change as regeneration produces be the result of mere ceremony? The Lord's words could not be a reference to the water baptism which John the Baptist preached. John refused water baptism to the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were unsaved. He said, "Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, 'We have Abraham to our father.'" He demanded of these individuals evidences of their salvation before he would baptize them. Josephus, the Jewish historian, states that John the Baptist would not baptize any except those who manifested a true faith in God. This makes it clear that our Lord was not speaking of the water baptism administered by John the Baptist as one of the prerequisites together with the new birth which would enable one to enter the kingdom of God. No one in all history ever received the new birth by water baptism. You can search your Bible in vain for anything like that. It's just not there. It is not in the Word of God. Nowhere in Scripture is baptism likened to birth. It rather speaks of death. We are buried with him by baptism into death. Water baptism is the symbol of the burial of our old man, not a picture of the second birth. Then, what is the water by which we're born again? Go through the entire word of God. Nowhere do we find people being born of literal water. Now trace water through the writings of the Apostle John. You'll find that water is the recognized symbol for the word of God. This is true throughout all Scripture both in the Old Testament and the New Testament in Psalm 119 verse 9 King David asks this question wherewithal shall a young man cleanse wash his way then David answers his own question by taking heed thereto according to thy word in John 4 the Lord Jesus speaking to the woman of Samaria said Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I will give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Now, what's the water that Jesus gives? It's the water of the word. It's the testimony of the gospel. As cold waters to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. And that's in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 25. Whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17. So we ask, what is the water of life? It's the gospel message defined by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. We read in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 and 26, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing off water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The water of the word is the cleansing agent. Jesus once said to his disciples, Now you're clean through the word. That's in John chapter 15 and verse 3. We are to be born again by the word, the water of God, brought home to our hearts and consciences by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit. There are two parents to the spiritual birth, just as there are two parents to the physical birth. The Lord calls our spiritual parents the water and the spirit. The spoken word of God brought together with the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit results in spiritual conception and birth. The word must be preached in power, and the call of the Holy Spirit must be present. Under these two influences, the new birth can take place. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Actually, the Lord used symbols for both the power of the Word and the power of the Spirit. We've seen that water is symbolic of the Word of God. The wind is also symbolic of God's Holy Spirit. The Greek word for wind and spirit is exactly the same. Although this word can be translated spirit, as it is in our English version, it can also be translated wind. The Lord's words could read, Except a man be born of water and of the wind, he cannot enter into the Kingdom of God. In verse 8 the Lord used the same word in a symbolic way and there it is translated wind. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Here the Lord is defining his symbol of verse 5. The wind represents the Holy Spirit. The water Represents the spoken word of God In verse 6 The Lord makes it very clear That there is a great distinction Between the flesh and the spirit That which is born of the flesh is flesh And that which is born of the spirit Is spirit You can do anything you like with the flesh But it does not turn it into spirit If you baptize it, it's baptized flesh If you make it religious, it's religious flesh Flesh remains flesh until the very end Flesh is born of the natural birth spirit the spiritual nature is born of the spiritual rebirth The two things are entirely different The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about the new birth faith Cometh by hearing and hearing cometh by the Word of God The Word having been believed and accepted the Holy Spirit accomplishes by his power the new birth the new nature the eternal life is received we may well call the word of God the mother of all those who are begotten again, while the Holy Spirit is the father. For this reason, Peter later exhorts newborn babes, those just born again, to desire the sincere milk of the word to grow thereby. Once again, my time is almost gone. We'll continue with our study of the Lord's interview with Nicodemus, our study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John, on the next broadcast. Friend. It's so good to once again greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I look forward to this time each day when we can share God's Word together. Today we're continuing our study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Let's open today's message by reading John chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit marvel not that I said unto thee ye must be born again the wind bloweth where it listeth and thou hearest the sound thereof but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth so is every one that is born of the Spirit Nicodemus answered and said unto him how can these things be Jesus answered and said unto him art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things The Lord had just told Nicodemus, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In reply to this, Nicodemus said, But I don't understand it. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he go through the whole process of nature again? Why, that seems absurd. Just imagine, can I go back and be born of my mother again? This question reveals the ignorance of the natural man. Though he may be, like Nicodemus, in the eyes of man, a great teacher and religious leader. Nicodemus was just as ignorant as the Samaritan woman who did not know what the Lord meant by living water. Nicodemus was the teacher in Israel, but he was ignorant of even the most simple point concerning the entrance into the kingdom of God. In answer to Nicodemus, our Lord enlightens him as to the new birth, that it is a birth of the Watcher and the Spirit, and repeats once more the absolute necessity of such a birth for entrance into the kingdom of God. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. In verse 6, the Lord makes it very clear that there is a great distinction between the flesh and the Spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You can do anything you like with the flesh, but it does not turn it into spirit. You can baptize it, and it's baptized flesh. If you make it religious, it's religious flesh. Flesh remains flesh until the very end. Flesh is born of the natural birth. Spirit, the spiritual nature, is born of the spiritual rebirth. The two things are entirely different. This new birth, by believing the word of God, and through the Holy Spirit as the agent of life and power, is absolutely necessary for entrance into the kingdom of God, all aspects of that kingdom. It's this which delivers from the powers of darkness and translates us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Israel cannot enter that coming kingdom, the kingdom which will come with the return of the king, except by the new birth. The remnant of Israel will be born again in that coming day, and a great national regeneration is in store for that nation. Just see Ezekiel chapter 36. After speaking of the necessity of the new birth, the Lord Jesus still saw a blank look upon the face of Nicodemus. But he also saw something else, as we're told in the words, Do not begin to marvel that I said to you, It is necessary in the nature of the case for you all to be born again. There are several things contained within this statement. The first is found in the words, Do not begin to marvel. The Lord Jesus knew what was in the heart of man, but he also noticed a blank look on Nicodemus' face. This demonstrated to him that Nicodemus not only was not understanding his teaching, but that there were signs of him starting to marvel at the teaching. Nicodemus thought he was hearing something entirely new. Note in verse 7 that the Lord uses the plural personal pronoun ye. If he had been speaking only of Nicodemus, he would have used the singular thou. Recall that when Nicodemus opened this conversation, he said, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. This plural we referred to Nicodemus and to all the members of the Sanhedrin. It's clear from 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 that the official leaders of Israel investigated the claims of Jesus regarding his Messiahship. Peter refers to the stone which the builders disallowed. The stone refers to our Lord, and the builders to the religious leaders of Israel. The word disallowed is the translation of a Greek word which means to put a person to the test for the purpose of approving him should he be found to meet the requirements laid down, and having found that he does not satisfy the the prescribed requirements to reject him. Israel was looking for its Messiah, and the Sanhedrin had investigated the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Nicodemus, speaking for all that august body, said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God. Probably the average reader would not notice that the ye of verse 7 is a plural pronoun and therefore does not refer to Nicodemus alone. This, by the way, cannot be known from reading modern English versions of the New Testament. These modern language versions are forced to use the English you for both singular and plural second person pronouns. Therefore, a part of the meaning of the original text is lost. The King James Version uses the Old English thou for singular pronouns and the plural ye for plural pronouns. The older language retains meaning lost in modern translation. In using the pronoun of the plural number, the Lord Jesus evidently had several things in view. First, he recognized the fact that Nicodemus belonged to the Sanhedrin and represented the position of that body with reference to himself. Second, he was making it plain to Nicodemus that not only was it necessary for him to be born again, but that all his associates in that venerable body of men also needed to be regenerated. Third, there may also be an implication that Jesus was suggesting to Nicodemus that he take this teaching back to the Sanhedrin itself. And of course the plural ye designates the necessity of the new birth for all who are ever to enter into God's presence marvel not that I said unto thee ye must be born again the Lord bids Nicodemus to stop wondering and the repeated emphasis confirms the great importance of the new birth no matter how this age may progress in educational and scientific matters it cannot progress in righteousness for it's an evil age the demand of the Son of God can never be changed. Ye must be born again. Because of his marveling, the Lord then explains to Nicodemus that there are mysteries in nature that we cannot understand. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. The point is you cannot see the wind, but you do recognize its power. Likewise, you cannot see the Holy Spirit, but you do recognize his power He is invisible, but he makes his presence felt in a mighty way as he convicts and regenerates Sinful men he changes men completely you recognize the power although you do not actually see it working first we see a wicked worldly woman and sudden she suddenly she becomes a quiet woman of prayer and We often see a wicked godless man changed into a preacher of the gospel This is the work of the Holy Spirit. You do not see the Spirit, but you do see His power manifest in those lives. Therefore, in this teaching of our Lord, there is a comparison between the invisible but mighty power of the wind and the unseen but powerful operation of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. One hears the sound of the wind, but he cannot see where it comes from nor where it's going. It is so in the operation of the Holy Spirit as he imparts spiritual life to the believing sinner. And like the wind, which, though it cannot be seen, yet produces results that are visible, so the Holy Spirit, in regeneration, imparts the divine nature, which produces results in the life of the individual, which can also be seen. Nicodemus, the teacher in Israel, should have recognized this great truth. However, he was still perplexed, as we see from his next question. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Once again and for the third time Nicodemus speaks. This is the last time he answered the Lord. He had first addressed him, expressing his faith in him as a teacher come from God. When our Lord had told him of the new birth as the only way into the kingdom, Nicodemus again answered foolishly, And now, after he had heard from the lips of the Son of God all the great truths concerning man's corrupt nature, the necessity of the new birth by water and the Spirit, and about the agent in the new birth, the Holy Spirit, in his incomprehensible operations, he's still perplexed. He asks, how can these things be? What an evidence of the blinded condition as to spiritual things this great teacher of Israel is revealed it's in the blindness of the natural man which is the condition of all of us after our eyes are opened we realize that it as the blind man did whom the lord healed one thing i know that whereas i was blind now i see nicodemus revealed ignorance even in the elementary things that he should have known as the teacher of israel Therefore, Jesus answers, Art thou the master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Nicodemus should have known about the new birth, as the master, the teacher of Israel. He should have known, through the study of the scriptures, at least in a general way, that Israel, before entering and possessing the kingdom promised to them, must be an Israel, not only circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart as well. Nicodemus had the Old Testament canon, and he professed to be a master teacher from the canon. The Jewish scriptures are filled with teachings that relate to the necessity of the new birth. The Old Testament prophets make it very plain that only the born-again remnant of Israel will enter the land and enjoy the millennial glories. My time for today is almost gone. We'll consider several of these Old Testament prophecies as we continue with our study of John chapter 3 on the next broadcast. Friend.